Hi everyone, I'm Lottie Bowser and you're listening to Lemonade, the podcast that amplifies extraordinary stories of adversity, courage and resilience so that you too can be reminded of your power. Every fortnight, a guest reveals the defining moments that have shaped their lives and the insights and tools they have learned that have helped them to thrive in the wake of their challenges. Season one is packed with incredible people, from activists to comedians, athletes and authors. Don't forget to hit the follow button to be the first to know about every new episode and leave us a review if you like what you hear. Madeline, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be speaking to you. How are you doing? I'm doing okay, thanks. Thanks for inviting me on. I came across your story on my friend Manon's podcast and I was just totally bowled over by not only your story, but as I said to you before we started recording, everything that you've gone on to do since over the last few decades. And before we kind of turn back the clock and hear about your experience, hear about what happened to you as a young woman. I wondered if you could start by just introducing yourself to our listeners today and tell us a little bit about the work that you do now. Sure. Uh, so my name is Madeleine. I'm a Londoner living in Glasgow. Um, I did work for a long time as a psychotherapist and really bad timing. Just before lockdown, I decided to focus more on speaking because I shared my own story um, 2014, so nearly 10 years ago. And ever since then, I used to say I became an accidental speaker because I was invited to share my story. So I share my own story of sexual violence, my lived experience from when I was just 13. And um, I, I never spoke about it for years, but now I kind of feel like it's almost my purpose or my duty in life to really, I guess, be a silence breaker to help other people find their voice, find their courage, speak out. Because I know what not speaking does, you know, it gets very, very heavy. So as I said, bad timing, just at the start of February 2020, I had just been um, a closing keynote speaker, which is like, you know, one of the favorite positions to be an opener or a keynote in Namibia for a big speakers conference. And I, th- I was getting very cocky. I thought, oh, my career is going off. And they were taking our temperature at the airport. We thought, this is a bit weird. What's going on here? We were laughing because we'd heard about the virus, but we didn't think it was going to be a big deal. And then lockdown came and then everything literally disappeared. All my, I had no therapy clients and then I had no speaking work. So I'm slowly coming back to the circuit. There's far more online and, and in-person events now. A word that I heard you mention in, in one of your interviews was the word story healer. And that really resonated with me because there's so much power in sharing our own story. And by listening to you open up and talk about your experience, you've given thousands of people, I would imagine, an invitation to also come forward and to speak up and to begin their own journey towards recovery. Well, you know, I think that courage is contagious. That was really me hearing someone else speak 
and bought her book and inside she wrote, no, you must speak. And I just thought, oh, if she can do that, I can do it. So it's a big ripple effect. You know, I've I've been helped by other people standing on their shoulder and then I just kind of pay it forward. But yeah, I didn't come up with the word story healer. So I shared my story with an organization for the first time called The Forgiveness Project. And our founder, an amazing woman called Marina Kantakazuno, doesn't call us storytellers she calls us story healers and as you say it's the the power of sharing stories that really intrigues me how it can open a door or it it's like it gives someone a different map a different direction and how to take their life they can do it in a different way there's more possibilities rather than being shut down and stuck it just uh yeah it highlights a different path you know that and hopefully gives them a bit of hope as well that um, yeah, there's a lot of healing, I think, when we share our stories, not just for the storyteller, but for the person that's listening as well. It offers light, doesn't it, to somebody who is in the midst of that seemingly unending darkness. Yeah, it's, it's hard, isn't it? Because it really depends, I think, where you're at and where your mindset is. Because sometimes somebody said to me, it doesn't help me that you're so healed because I don't think I'll ever get there. You know, so they're so caught in their darkness. And some people say, yeah, it's good to know that I can, you know, feel freer from this one day. So I think it comes down to what's in us as well. But I'm hoping even the people that say I'll never get there. And I've known some people for a long time. They've followed my journey. Now, many years later, things do shift. We've never stayed in the same place for one time. Things can get better, but it takes intention. You know, sometimes I think, even if we're in the dark times, it's, it's what we know. So sometimes that's easier to stay in the darkness, which doesn't sound very compassionate. But um, it's like, who would I be if I didn't have this depression or this grief or this eating disorder, whatever? It's, it's hard to imagine being somebody different because I think sometimes it just fills a big hole in us. Of course it does. And you said something else as well that really struck me. We are not the sum of... A single experience, right? But it's very hard to see that, I think, when we are in the midst of... Absolutely. It took, that took me decades, that little bit of enlightenment. <laughs> decades! Because I used to think it was my body, it was my fault. You know, in the very, very beginning, they accused me of smiling and like as if I was enjoying it because my body, it just responded. It's biology, after all. They said, oh, look, she's having a great time, whatever, um, which is not the case. Um, so I always feel like my body let me down and maybe it was my fault. And there's so much guilt and blame out there anyway. So that was compounded by all the rape messages or the, you know, the victim blaming myths that are there. And I just thought it I had put myself in that situation, you know, I just sort of always thought it was my fault for years. I know now it's not. And then I realised whatever happens, um, I came into this world with a body, but I'm not my body. I'm not what happened to me. We're all of us. Yes, it makes uh, it makes us into what happens in some way, which sounds now going to sound contradictory, but I'm, I'm the sum of many, many events, not just that one night. And all of them then still doesn't make me, still don't know who I am completely. But um, yeah, I don't think in my understanding that I am what happened to me. I'd like to think that I am more than just that one night and I don't think I'm my body or what they did to me. I agree. And I, I feel that deeply in my own way. In as much or as little detail as you feel comfortable sharing, I wondered if you could take us to that night that changed your life's trajectory. Yeah. It's easy for me to speak about it. And anyone that's listening, when I say easy, this has taken a lot of work. It's, you know, it's not just um, 
I got there overnight. It is a, it is a process, but I have written a book about it and I've done two TEDx talks about it. So I'm used to sharing my stories. This is what I now do. But yeah, I don't want people to think it's easy because I know it's, it's not easy. But right now it is easier for me. So um, it was a night, I guess, that many people would have had. You know, I had a girlfriend at school. She was one of these um, really cool girls in the class and everybody just wanted to be her. And she said her mum was away and would I like to go on a night out? And I just thought, well, that sounds really exciting. And things at home were not so great. My mum was unwell and bedridden for a few years. So I guess it was a bit of escapism as well. And we did what most people do. We um, managed to convince a local off-license that we were the right age. This was the late 1970s, and we bought a bottle of vodka. I've never, never, ever drunk it again. Even the smell, I can't go near it, even in a cocktail. And we took it to a local cafe, and I got very, very sick. And just to cut a long story short, there were some guys at our table, and two of them put us into a taxi and took us back to this empty flat and they put us into separate rooms and they both proceeded to rape and torture me really over a four to five hour period. Um, and then I woke up and they were gone. And I was in the bed next to my friend who hadn't been touched to the same way that I had, really not at all. And I had a lot of injuries, but at that point, my my memories were very, very hard to grasp. It was really hard to remember, I think mainly because of the alcohol, but also because I literally left the scene. Uh, memories of, you know, flying out of my body and watching it from sitting on top of the wardrobe, which I know now is normal and there's a huge trauma we can. It's amazing what our mind can do. We can literally get out of the way, which I think is what saved me because I don't know if I would... Dissociation. Yeah, I don't think I would be here if I had stayed in my body. I think I might have died from the trauma. And um, yeah, we never, we just cleaned up the flat. We didn't speak about it because, as I said, I thought, well, I bought alcohol. I'm staying in an empty flat. Nobody knew where I was. This is before mobile phones, obviously. Nobody could track me. And um, I met boys, all, all the things that my parents warned me against. And uh, yeah, I thought, well, I brought this on myself. It's my fault. I'll just keep stum. And also one of them very near to the end, the one, I guess I really refer to him as the worst one. To me, he wasn't really as human as the other one. In my eyes, looking into his eyes, it felt like he was more animal, I suppose, which sounds a bit odd, but I wasn't really sure with him. And he threatened to me and said, if I spoke about it, that they would find me and, you know, kill me or do more harm. And yeah, at 13, knowing what he had done, I believed it. And so then I just spent the rest of my time squishing it far down inside of me and putting it out of my consciousness as much as I possibly could. But obviously, we can't really do that because it's got to come out somehow. So even if we can't verbally speak it, it comes out of us in our behaviours, in our patterns, in our bad behaviours, in our addictions. It has to come out of our system somehow. And it did. It started to leak out of me. Gosh, Madeleine, it just never ceases to horrify me. I just have to say, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. Thank you. But you know, my story, it's just a story of many people. It's not, it's not uncommon. It's just maybe more uncommon that someone can speak about it, maybe as I do. But every day somewhere on this planet, there'll be a man, a woman, a child abused or raped in some way, not just in this country, globally. So it's a global problem, sexual violence. Mm, it is. You just mentioned that, you know, this trauma that you buried had to come out in other ways. 
how did it express itself for you? Did you experience post-traumatic stress? I numbed out and shut down. I didn't really speak or eat much. So I developed depression. I ended up attempting suicide. So I was in a children's psychiatric ward from just had my 14th birthday in there. I developed an eating disorder, became anorexic. I started to use drugs, alcohol, just really to help to numb out. Um, My family didn't really know what had happened and they used to refer to me as the ice maiden because I was just so like cut off from my head and my body. Uh, Just put myself into dangerous situations, rebelled really hard, partied, went out when they said stay in. Um, Yeah, just really filled with self-loathing, self-hate, no confidence, no self-belief, no self-worth. I think that was worse really is what it did to me, you know, just thought, well, uh, what can I be worth if this is all that people, what, if this is what people can do to me, I can't be worth anything. Mm. Especially at such a tender age, you know, to essentially have had your childhood and teenage years taken from you. What was the turning point for you? Because Correct me if I'm wrong, but you were silent. You kind of held it for a number of years. What was the point at which you decided to come forward and speak about your experience? I didn't really speak it. I wrote it because I still couldn't speak it. I remember sneaking in really late one night and my mum was just having a go at me. She waited up for me and she was in the hallway in the morning and she said, you know, you're putting yourself into so much danger by behaving like this. Anything, you know, could happen to you, blah, blah, blah. And inside I'm trying to like find my voice and say, actually, the worst thing already has happened to me. You just don't know about it. So I just left a note on my pillow before I went to school and they called my friend who was involved. She kind of denied that it happened to the extreme that I had said it had and said, you know, they were just nice boys and they brought us home. And um, that was how my parents first found out about it. My dad still really wanted to go to the police. And I just said no, because I was still terrified, you know, about what they would do. And my mum was quiet and it took me a long time to understand that. I did get the understanding many years later, but that was really when I first spoke about it to anyone um, or or to my parents. And then really, I think my healing journey started. I'd met my husband. I was very young, 17, 40 years ago now. And um, I wasn't going to have children because I just thought uh, in my head, I was, it was all my fears and phobias and paranoid thoughts were about being out of control, being around men and my safety and the idea of childbirth just ticked all those boxes. I just thought, well, everything's going to get triggered. So I just thought, well, I won't, I won't become a mum. That's the easiest. And then I just thought one day, they've won. If I don't do this, they're still pulling my strings, you know, and they don't even know they're doing that. They're still controlling me. And I thought, I don't want them to have control over my life. I could take control back. I mean, they don't even know any of this anyway. And so I thought I'm going to become a mum, which I did. I have three girls. And that's what I call my best revenge, that I was then determined to live my life, have my children and try to heal as much as I can from it. And that's really, I think, my decision to become a mum sent me on this journey of 
finding therapists. I went through quite a few because I looked in their eyes and thought, no, you can't hear what I need to say. No, you can't. You just get a sense that who's right and who's not. Um, and eventually I did work with some good people. You do eventually find the people that you need. And that really started my healing, I think, becoming a mum and, uh, yeah, looking at my fears that were holding me back. So you, you met your husband very young, 17. What happened to you only happened four years prior to that. I would imagine that your experience had a big impact on how you were able to, to relate to another human being, another man. They did, yeah. I mean, before that, I had become really, really promiscuous, which I know now is just as many, many ways a woman can respond after being raped. And that was like, just fed into my worthlessness. I kind of perpetuated that, you know, what I told myself that, and also I thought if somebody tries it on, it's easier than fighting back because it will just get violent. And so then that earned me a name and then that just got worse and worse. But when I met him, Stephen, something in me just instinctively said that I could trust him. I don't know what it was. And I luckily, I listened to that intuition because we are still together now. And I just knew that he was okay. I was traveling in Israel. I was there for a year. He was Scottish, still is Scottish, funny enough. And um, life just put us together. And then I came back to London. He was in Glasgow. We used to just um, commute on the overnight bus, sometimes the train. There was no mobile phones. Used to write letters. And uh, yeah, for two years we did that until eventually he moved to London. And now we both live back in Glasgow. So. Yeah, something just spoke to me and thought he's going to be okay. I think sometimes the right person can actually help us to heal as well, can't they? Did you withhold your experience for a while? or? Yeah, I didn't tell him straight away. Uh, you know, he knew some stuff had happened. And then when I decided to become a mum, he knew that I needed to go for therapy. And it was only after about three years of therapy after my eldest daughter was 13, I had a lot of stuff return, um, which is always going to come back, funny enough. We always think we've done a good job and we're healed, but actually it's just this big onion, isn't it? It's just another layer and another layer. <laughs> so it was big. the biggest layer came back when I was studying psychotherapy, doing tons of personal development, and Anna became the same age that I was. And, um, yeah, all the flashbacks, all the memories, everything. It was like this... Pandora's box just opened and everything that I thought I'd squashed down or dealt with just was like, how can all this be true? Surely I'd remember all of that stuff. But then and now I know our mind is amazing. It has the ability just to block it off and shut it away. It thinks it's healing us or helping us. But actually, when it came back, it felt very dreamlike. It didn't really feel real. But, but I always feel that he, as you say, um, he was like an angel sent to save me because at that point I just, I don't know what would have happened. But he didn't know all of the details until I was going through therapy the final time when Anna was 13. My therapist suggested that, you know, maybe you should tell him what happened so he knows why you're still here three years later um, to know the severity of it. And then I still had so much shame. Shame just really run alongside me for years. It was really my best pal for a long time, which I think is what kept me quiet. And I could only tell him when we were in bed one night, I said, I've been advised to tell you and I want to tell you. Uh, I had to hold his hand with the lights off. I couldn't even look at him because I was so embarrassed. And I just thought it would change how he looks at me. He might not want to know me anymore. You know, he would think of me differently. And now I know 
that was just a shame. That was the shame speaking to me, you know, feeding me all of this. So that was good to finally tell him, yeah. I heard you say that eventually you came to the realisation that that shame wasn't even yours to carry in the first place. Yeah, it always belonged to them. You know, we carry inappropriate shame for so long, so many years. And uh, well, why should I be ashamed for a crime that was committed against my body? You know, if your house is burgled, your car is keyed, whatever, we're not ashamed. It's such an intimate crime. And then because of the culture of victim blaming and rape myths and, and all of that, we put so much, we always say she was raped rather than a man raped her. So Mm -hmm. still, even in the way that we report it, she was raped, already implying fault and guilt, even in the way it's reported. So, yeah, it's really hard to get that right in my head. That was really hard because of everything that surrounded me in this culture that we live in. Even now, there's still so much victim blaming, so much. It's so true. And it's so insidious. You're right. The way that they word it, the way that they report it. It's always conveyed as violence against women, not male violence, isn't it? The women are always the subject of the conversation and that inadvertently puts the responsibility on on the woman. And yet we know babies are raped, we know women in burkas are raped, we know wives are raped in their own homes. It's nothing to do about you know, street lighting. It's nothing to do about being alone. It's, it's, you know, it's men's choice to rape. Mm, it is. I agree. But, you know, if we don't speak about it and we just brush it under the carpet, how will we ever bring it to the arena? How will we ever challenge these um, mindsets or these beliefs that actually, well, you were at fault because, you know, you're wearing a lacy thong or you went up to his hotel room or whatever, or you were drinking. My alcohol didn't cause rape. My genes didn't call rape, cause rape. They did. 100% of all rapes are caused by rapists and nothing else. And that took me a long time to work out as well. <laughs> mm. Madeleine, I'm, I'm not sure if you're able to talk about this, but has there been any accountability? No, because I, I never reported it. And they were sons of diplomats. So they would have lived in London for a couple of years. And I imagine after that, they would have gone back to America. So no. And actually, it, did, it took me to my late 50s when I was writing my memoir that I realized I had been raped three more times um, because I had no idea. Like I said, I was very promiscuous about consent. If they just said yes and I said no, you know, they just carried on anyway. And it's interesting because it's those chapters that people say to me, well, I was in not the first one. It was quite extreme. But the other three um, what was that happened to me? Said, well, I didn't realise that that was rape. I said no. And then the next thing I know, he's on top of me. And then they just did it. And I thought, well, uh, you know, he has an erection now already. So I have to go through with it already. And you think, no, you, you can stop whenever you want. You can change your mind. Even if you say yes to start with, you can then say no in the middle. Um, and that, you know, is interesting that that got a lot of people thinking. And it got me thinking as well. How did I never even class that as, as rape? I just used to think, I'd had a lot of bad sex and just put it down to, you know, a bad experience, but I never, ever called that rape. Yeah, that shocked me, even in the writing that that came out of me. I think there is a, as women, we we conclude that, you know, unless there is 
violence involved that it doesn't constitute as rape. But, you know, non-consensual sex is that. And I'd hazard a guess, Madeleine, that most women have had an experience of that to some degree. Sadly, yes, I think they will. You talk a lot about forgiveness. You mentioned it in one of the TED Talks, and I wondered if you could speak a little bit more about that. What, what role has that played for you? Yeah, so I need to say before I talk about it, I'm not a forgiveness preacher. You know, I don't tell people that, that the only way to heal is by through forgiveness. You know, there's many, many paths to healing. It's one that really took me by surprise, a bit like being an accidental speaker. I became this accidental forgiver. And I was like, I, I was never, ever going to forgive them. I hated them with every fibre of my body and I fantasised about just awful things happening to them. So they would, you know, understand what living with trauma does, it's not one night, it's, you know, many, many years and how it affects and touches everything in your life. But when I was having therapy, when Anna was 13, uh, my therapist just said at the end, you know, maybe they weren't born rapist. And straight away I went to my anger, but then I went to a place of inquiry and I just wanted to understand because they really weren't a lot older than me. And I just thought, how could they be that violent towards somebody? You know, how did they even know that? How could, what happened? How did it gone so wrong in their life? And somehow I didn't, I didn't plan this. I started to feel compassion in my heart because I thought, well, I've done a really good job of living my life, of draining my swamps, as I call it, from my trauma. But I think to live with what you do to someone else must be harder. I don't know how they would ever have self-forgiveness. And I also realised, you know, holding on to that anger, it doesn't do me any favours. It doesn't do my husband, my kids that I struggle to have, my friends, my family. I'm only hurting me. It's like drinking poison and expecting them to be affected by the poison, you know. So it was really harming me to have this really hot anger inside of me that really willed them awful things to happen. And I saw that... I could choose really to forgive them, just to really finally just make peace with it all. Because I saw, as we said, I'm not my body. And all the flashbacks really, it was just a story. It was like watching a movie. And the more I had therapy, the more I took the sting out of these images that I was shown. And once the the energy and that sting had diluted, I could watch the show without it impacting me. I mean, to start with, I would throw up in the sessions. I would shake. I would cry. I'd want to run from the room. I wouldn't want to go back every week because I knew what I'd have to face. Something always drove me to go back. But once I'd really, really worked it, because you have to really feel it, I think, to heal from it. There's, there's no escaping it. You know, we think we've done it, but you really have to dive into it. And that, it seemed to me it was a final piece of understanding and acceptance And that kind of, for me, it was about forgiving them for just being human, for having their life just altered so much that they could do that to another human being. I just really felt sorry for them, which that might sound very weird to someone listening right now, but that's where I went. And then I just realized I had to forgive that 13-year-old girl first because she did nothing wrong. You know, she was just really wrong place, wrong time. That's all. That's all I did. And, And that took a lot to self-forgive and then I just thought holding on to all that is just rubbish it's really not helping me in any way 
um, developing as a human being or moving forward with my life. So I had to really let it go. Oh, I chose to let it go. I didn't have to let it go because we can hold on to things for years, which I know because I did that. But I just saw that putting down all these weapons of anger, which were hurting me, was it's a lot more peaceful. There's no battles now inside with that. I still get into battles with other things, but with that, you know, I can let that go. I can't imagine that that was by any means easy, but I think what you've just shared is a really important reminder of our agency right? In her book, It's Okay That You're Not Okay, it's a, it's a grief resource. The psychotherapist, Megan Devine, distinguishes the difference between pain and suffering. And that, you know, of course, the pain will always be there. It might ebb and flow and change shape and soften over time and with the right implementation of tools. Um, but suffering, you know, the voluntary rumination and the holding of of all of these feelings and emotions that that is needless and it compounds the trauma only when we see that sometimes we don't see it and I think sometimes as I said before it fed something in me because it kept that anger going if I suffered you know then I've got every right to be angry which I did obviously there is appropriate anger there really is but after a while it became just toxic for me and of course, you know, there are involuntary repercussions of trauma. By the sounds of it, you experienced post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, I was, didn't realise until I was doing training at Rape Crisis to be a volunteer and they had the board up with all the side effects. But, oh, I've had that, 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 that. Oh, still do that. Still. And I like almost tick, apart from self-harming because I was very bad with knives and I could never inject. So that was quite good. That's about the only thing I didn't do on the list. And I thought... Oh my gosh, all these years I have been doing this, you know, startled easily, jumped and looked after myself, my safety, everything was just that on hypervigilant the whole time. Yeah, your nervous system preparing to fight or flee. Mm. You've spoken about talking therapy. Were there any other types of therapies, any other tools that you turn towards to help you with these symptoms that you were experiencing? Yes, so many. <laughs> so many. Um, really, it was when my memories returned and I was seeing my therapist, the talking therapist, and I was really caught in denial. And I just thought that um, I'd made it up. You know, I'd worked at Women's Aid for a long time. I'd worked at Rip Crisis as a volunteer. So I've just listened to us. so many women's stories that somehow I've just digested all of this and now it's coming out of me. And he said, why would you make that up? You know, you could choose anything. Why would you choose that? And I thought, well, oh, he's kind of got a point. But I, I can see the denial is really what held me back from moving forward. I just fought and fought with these memories. So he suggested going for like some therapeutic massage, which I did. And the very first time I went along, she laid me on the plinth, but I could hear this woman just crying and fighting with the massage therapist and shouting. And I just turned around and I thought, God, who is making that noise? And then I realized it was me. It was all coming from me. And it showed me that um, I couldn't, at that point, I didn't trust my mind, you know, uh, what is our mind? You know, if we cut it open, it doesn't really bleed, does it? What is our mind? I couldn't trust it. It was just, I was so caught in denial of all these memories, but I thought, there is no way I would make my body respond in that way. And so I learned through her 
that all of our trauma gets held in our body, it gets held in our cells, which is why we get triggered by smells, by sounds, by sights. And they can be good smells. You know, you can smell a rose oil and think of your grandma or you can see a block of flats and I can be transported to where it took place. After that experience, I then decided to try more alternative, I guess, kind of therapies to get me to land back in my body because I... As I said, I left my body on that night and I never felt like I was back in. I always felt so disconnected from my head and my body as if I was like this house that I had rented, but it was unfurnished. You know, there was nothing inside of me. It was just this empty vessel I felt for years. And I always felt like I could disassociate at any time, which I did for long periods. And so I did everything I could to land back in. So some things might be a little bit um, not conventional. I've worked with a shaman I've done many many sweat lodges I've taken plant medication um, plant therapy I've tried hypnosis I've done drumming um, lots of sport to land me back in my body and actually when we were talking before about you know the the pictures and the memories it was when I was taking plant medication um, I took something called San Pedro, which I couldn't do ayahuasca because I was too scared of being rendered senseless that someone could do whatever they want to me. So San Pedro is a bit lighter. Um, and what it basically does, it strips you of all your conditioning and then it just leaves you with what is going on. And the very first few times I took it, we used to do it with a group of people up in the highlands of Scotland. It's uh, from the plant from Peru. And then we would have a sweat lodge in the evening. So whatever was working would just come out even more. And everyone was having a fabulous time. They were climbing the trees, they were swimming in water, and I was in a fetal position, curled up in trauma. And I just thought, ah. And then, so about the fifth time I took it, I'm, I'm a glutton for punishment because it's really not for the faint hearted. On the, five, the fifth retreat, I sat by the water, and like you said, they're just pictures. And I just thought, right, just show me the show. I don't want to do this suffering that I'm causing myself. I was watching the show over and over again, like I'd gone to um, a multi-screen cinema and that was every film was showing and playing and I was just watching it over and over. It was just in my consciousness the whole time. So I sat at this riverbed and I just went through the whole event in my head. I went, that's it. It is just pictures. I do not need to watch this show anymore. And that's when I think... I had this revelation that, yeah, I'm cool. I'm choosing to watch all these images. I'm making myself suffer unnecessarily. And after that, I've, I've never taken it again. So it was uh, very healing for me. But, yeah, it's not, it's not really for the faint-hearted. I don't know how legal it is in this country as well. Uh, but, yeah, it was, it was good. Um, it, was, it was very potent for me. I, I won't profess to be, you know, well-versed on, on the literature and the the science behind trauma but I, I think it is your body thinking that you are still in it right even though it is it's clearly an event in the past it is over you are not in danger anymore your body still thinks that you're there yeah and actually it does come back when it thinks you're ready to heal from it whether we believe it or not I didn't believe it and I denied it and denied it and actually find I don't like to have regrets because you do the journey that you do but if I could tell myself one thing or just get out of the way of yourself you're just delaying this healing process accept what you're being shown it's not come from nowhere it's come from what's happened to you but I couldn't I just thought it was a reflection of me and again that was my shame 
I just thought if I told my therapist what they did, he would say, oh, I'm not dealing with you because it was too big. It was too strong the shame. I was actually going to ask you if you could tell the younger version of yourself something. What would it be? I would say just speak to someone straight away. You know, I held it in for three years. It was, it was 16, nearly 17. Um, yeah, if you can, just uh, speak to somebody straight away. Because I think the quicker we get support, the quicker we get help, the better it is. And that leads me on to my next question, which I feel you've already answered, but perhaps we could um, expand upon it a little more. If anyone listening, perhaps they're in a similar position to to the one that you found yourself in, what words of advice would you give them? You know, I would just say, which I always say, it's never too late to find your voice to go out there and get support because, as we know, when we hold it in, it gets heavy and it gets heavier and it gets heavier and we're constantly carrying all these bags of stuff, literally, as they call it, luggage, around with us. And, you know, if you can't find a therapist, find a friend, find a hairdresser, find someone just to share your story with. And if you can't find someone, write it down and don't do what I did and deny it. You know, we undermine things and we say it's not that bad. It wasn't a big deal. It is a big deal. It really is a big deal. Whatever you're dealing with and you feel like if it wasn't, if it wasn't a big deal, why do you feel like you can't speak about it? So, you know, it is a big deal. Whatever is causing us not to feel balanced as a human is setting off our equilibrium. It is affecting us. So we really, I do think we have to give it oxygen. I think that's the first step in healing just to say it out there I can remember when I was training I was having supervision and I walked into the room at my college and somebody had written the word therapist on the blackboard but they put a line between the e and the r so it said the rapist and I just thought and I, I guess it must have been a lesson in how not to you know take advantage of your client or how to be do therapy well and respectful boundaries I'm not sure what it was about and I couldn't even see it written on the blackboard it just freaked me out and I had to leave the room so you know being able to give it oxygen and speak about it it just shifts that energy that we hold on to so much inside absolutely Madeline on your website your tagline is the courage cultivator I wondered if you could tell me what what courage means to you. Yeah, I think, you know, as they say, feel the fear and do it anyway. So when I did my first TEDx, I can't tell you, I was so scared. I'd never spoken to two and a half thousand people in one room at the one time. So it was, it was, I was so scared. But, you know, as soon as I stood on that red dot, I just thought, I am just the vessel. I'm just the voice. It's not about me and my story. It's what I can do now for other people to find their voice. And as we said, courage is contagious. I do believe that hearing other people, many women's shoulders I'm standing on, help me to find my voice. I'm just paying that forward. And that very first time I spoke, I speak a little bit about it in my second TEDx. A young girl was in the audience. She was there with her school. There were 20, 30 pupils. And her school didn't know that she had been um, attacked by a family member three years prior. She was an amazing young girl. She was doing so great at school. But hearing me speak, obviously, was a massive trigger because I don't warn you what the TEDx talk is going to speak about. The day was called Connections. And she just started to cry and to cry. And they took her out. She was able to tell the teacher she was with and they uh, took her to the police and they reported it she's had a court case was discovered to be doing the same to her sister 
Um, so yeah, if I was there just to speak to her, then that's my job done. So it feels like it is my purpose now just to really help other people to find their courage, but to live their life courageously as well. You know, don't, don't let yourself be held back by not speaking out and finding your voice, speaking your truth, speak it. You also said in another interview, it's not what happens to us in life that's important. It's what we do with it that matters. And I think you are a, an incredible example of transmuting your experience to do something purposeful and impactful that is quite clearly helping yeah, but, many others. But you are the same. Look at you and your grief journey. You're, you are, you've turned from the darkness into light and you're, you've from pain. You found your purpose too. And I think that's all we can hope to do, isn't it? In, in the wake of such horrendous experiences, you know, we can't control what happened, but we do get to decide what life looks like from here on out. But as you just said, the important word is decide. So it is a choice. There's always a choice. You know, I tried anger for years and years and years and it, it didn't work. <laughs> it really is not, it's not good. Not good for me, not good for other people around me. But it is a choice, but we have to see that we have a choice because we, we can get stuck very easily. And, you know, so Katie asked for help. It's really okay. We're not saying that that's easy by any means. It's obviously taken years to reach a place where we are able to acknowledge our own autonomy, our agency. Um, but yeah, it takes work. It takes commitment. It takes conscious effort, but healing. And when I say healing, I think it's really important to clarify it's not reaching this end point where we clap our hands and everything's fine and, you know, we've made peace with what's happened. It's more a sense of kind of no longer being in resistance to what was, right? Yeah, because, yeah, I, I really thought that I was healed. You know, I'm 100%, I'm okay. And I was at an event recently, a friend of mine also has a huge big story, but she was doing an, uh, talking at an event in York and she's in England. So we met halfway. And I just went along just to support my friend and they were doing other things on empowerment weekend. So they do the one, I don't know if you've done it, where you have an arrow at your neck and you walk towards someone and you, you break the arrow and you walk on fire and you walk on broken glass. And I could do the fire and the glass, but when they did the arrow and I've done it before, it just turned into the knife at my throat. And, uh, and I started to feel it building up and I started to shake and cry. And I thought, oh, for goodness sake, there's a whole room of people here and they know that I'm a speaker. Oh, my God. So that was also my ego coming in, I guess. What did it look like? But I couldn't do anything. But then I thought, OK, this is not happening right now. This is an arrow. This is not the knife at your throat. And then I, then I, But now I'm in a place where I can think, well, thank you for that trigger, because it's just a little bit of residue that's now left in my body. And it just, it just burped up just for me to work it. And that's just one less trigger that I'll ever have to do again. So, but yeah, but before that would have set me back months, months, you know, ages. And I can just five, 10 minutes, I can self-regulate. So I think that's the trick is to find a way, whatever it is, that you can connect back in and ground yourself. To stay as grounded as possible is the trick, really. And it's not linear. You know, as you've just pointed out, it's sort of five steps forward, two back, yeah, up, down, you know, you're having a good day and then it's everything's fallen to shit again and you, you feel you're back at square one. And you're never at square one, actually, because you've built that foundation. But it's how quickly you can self-regulate. I think that's the trick now. How quickly can you get back to you and realize it's just a trigger? It's just a picture. It's just an emotion that had to come up. Just a little burp. 
just a bit of trap wind that needs to (laughs) deal with the trap wind (laughs) Madeleine you are just incredible thank you so much for this conversation it will stick with me for time to come where might my listeners be able to connect with you all the social media if you go to my website it's got all the links which is just madeleineblack.co.uk and links to my book and my my old podcast show there's still 123 episodes left there in cyberspace 